0: Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns, the Sales Leaders Playbook. Today, we welcome to the soap studio, Scott Sinatra, former CRO at Glint. In this episode, we discover the master of walking away from a deal and how sales leaders build value proposition. This is his playbook.
1: series the 33 CXOs, we investigate one of the greatest success stories in the history of software sales. 33 CXOs learnt the playbook from one man, John McMahon, a legacy which stretches back to the late 90s at a company called PTC. They were later reunited at Blade Logic which was acquired by BMC. What happened next was truly remarkable. These CXOs went on to become the most prolific sales leaders in the software industry. They've raised over 22 billion in VC funding. They contribute to 4% of software turnover globally, 26 unicorns, eight Decacorns, and the companies they drive have a combined valuation of 230 billion. At Hunters and Unicorn, we're revealing their playbook. Welcome to another episode of Hunters and Unicorns. I'm Simon Kutis and this is my co-host Ollie Kune. Hey everyone. And we are absolutely delighted and honoured to welcome Scott Sinatra. Welcome
2: Scott. Hi guys, nice to see you. Nice to be here.
1: Welcome to the show. Scott. So, um, Welcome, welcome to the show Scott. So um, Scott, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Um, obviously, first of all, a massive congratulations. It's been a a huge almost six years obviously you've recently left glint following the acquisition from linkedin um, you were formerly the kind of head of uh, global sales and revenue for glint so congratulations for that quite a journey
2: thank you very much
1: great great so um scott obviously we're going to talk quite a lot about glint because i know that um it was a very important part of your kind of journey in really crystallizing and incubating a lot of the amazing things that you learned from the early parts of your career. But actually, what, where we want to start is right from the very beginning. So if you can just tell us, Scott, how did you get into software sales?
2: My first software sales job was at PTC. Um, okay. It, uh, I, I remember vividly, Uh, Reading an article in Forbes magazine where it talked about this uh, elite team of sales athletes that were capturing market share in a new industry at an alarming rate. Um, And I was really captivated by wanting to join and be a part of a team like that. I had some friends there, uh, which was an introduction into the company anyway. And, um, I took a job as an individual contributor, um, just to get in because I knew I had a lot to learn and, uh, I knew I was going to be surrounded by some, some serious sales athletes. And that in fact was true. A real baptism of fire. I, I, I. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, uh, that's an understatement. Um. You know, they had, uh, PTC has a, re- a very rigorous um, sales onboarding and training program. Um, they had, you know, the methodology nailed, they had qualification process nailed, all of those really important aspects of running these teams. And, uh, you know, uh, they warn you in advance of coming to onboarding that there's a lot of prep work, be prepared, it's, in, it's an intense time. Um, And I'm not sure I listened as fully as I should have going into the onboarding uh, class at PTC. In fact, um, uh, after day one, they pulled me aside and threatened to kick me out of the class because I was unprepared. Wow. Um, I knew right then and there that I was, uh, this is a place for me. um, And this is a, these were very serious folks. We're on a very serious mission, but we're doing some really amazing things and I can learn a ton. And that was one of the things in my career that was one of the biggest eye openers in terms of being prepared. Um, and it's stuck with me to this day.
0: Brilliant. We, we've heard some fantastic onboarding and interviewing um, <laughs> techniques used by some of the management. Do you remember your who was it that interviewed you and what that interview was like?
2: oh not so much it was um i know i remember going through a series of interviews locally i was in indianapolis indiana at the time and some of those folks were my friends so it wasn't as intense as it probably could have been yeah i remember going down to um uh, to atlanta to meet with um one of the vps and you know i got asked some questions i'd never been asked before and was really put on the spot and to try to be as smart as I possibly could. And I remember feeling like I didn't do so well. Okay. Um, so no great interview stories other than, you know, um, I was dealing with a, a, a new level, a next level, you know, type of company, um, a type of culture. Um, I was really excited about it. I was a bit nervous about it. Um, but really thrilled for the opportunity to to learn and grow in that kind of an environment, which I did.
1: Why do you think that they um, took you on, Scott, in, in that phase of your kind of career? And you know,
2: well, I think I I brought some experience to the table. It wasn't necessarily in software. Um, I've been managing teams since I was 28 years old, so I was pegged early on in my career as you know a high potential leader um, and was put in those positions very early. Um, What I really didn't know going into PTC was actually how to sell software. You know, I was was in the medical device business prior. And so, you know, I talk a lot about leading from the front. Um, It wouldn't have been appropriate or the right decision to put me in a management position at PTC right away. Um, And I was fine with that. Let me go and learn some new skills. Let me learn what software is all about, and then maybe potentially from there, you know, I move up and, and through the organization. And that was my mindset, um, and it was absolutely the right thing for them to do, and the perfect thing for me to go through um, at that time. But they, I, 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 they saw, uh, you know, some skill. They saw some experience. They saw that I managed teams and people and understood that. So I think that was part of the equation.
0: And how quickly did you pick it up, Scott?
2: It was a lot of trial and error, man. <laughs> um, not as quickly as I, was, uh, what I, was, I would have liked. Um, I remember having to go through and you know, gaining a lot of scar tissue through the process of learning a sales process um, and, and really internalizing how to leverage medic um, the right way. Um, I learned the value of, um, you know, uh, pipeline development and making sure that you are busy to the point of uh, developing some courage in your forecast. Um, You know, there's so many lessons from PTC, you know, and I just remember those days looking to the left and looking to the right and just the elite nature of the folks that I was getting to go to battle with every single day was really inspiring you know these were people that were really accomplished way better than me and i was a sponge it took me a while uh, eventually you know through a lot of scar tissue and i always say scar tissue is the great <laughs> is a great teacher uh, uh you know developed a lot of scar tissue at ptc on how to sell software the right way what, what one other comment there is you know one of the things that i really liked about ptc was You know, um, in that Forbes article it talks a little bit about, you know, the the buyer, the customer, doesn't necessarily know how to buy software. And it's our job as professional salespeople to teach them how to buy software, and and in particular our software. Um, But, you know, that was a revelation for me and um, something that has stuck with me, obviously, to this day.
0: Yeah, some strong foundations laid right there.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: So, moving on early 2020 moved on to data link um again an individual contributory sales role was that a management role
2: yeah i joined as an individual contributor um was was, quickly got moved into managing um and you know kind of parlayed my experience in selling software into selling storage area networks and and kind of broad-based infrastructure systems uh for for businesses so um yeah
0: and um, from there moved on to is it moser it consulting a consulting company
2: yeah so uh, similar in that moser was a uh, family-owned business actually um doing it consulting work in the midwest where i was living at the time and uh, I was hired in as a general manager. So uh, I came in to basically run the business. So I took all my experience from PTC and from Datalink and my knowledge of, of um, um, infrastructure and all of those um, those things and um, parlayed that into actually going and running that business for a while.
0: And a 300% revenue growth.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Rumble right there.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, you know, uh, sales execution became a thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh company execution became a thing and something that, you know, um, I became pretty adept at doing. So, um, yeah, it was a good little run.
0: So nearly five years later, blade logic, <laughs> tell us about this day, the day you get a call,
2: give us a bit more insight. Uh, well, My good buddy, Paul McGrath, who I think is one of the 33, you guys have, is have, have shouted out. Um, he's a dear friend, um, he called me out of the blue one day I'd been, you know, selling into it and, um, had developed some relationships, you know, in that world, he called me out of the blue and he said, Hey, you know, I just, uh, I've stumbled on, you know, where I actually, I think what he said is, um, we're getting the band back together. We're mm-hmm. getting some of the band back together on this little piece of technology out of Boston. He said, I, um, I hope I'm not calling him out here, but he said, I have no idea what I'm doing. I've never sold anything in this space before. Can you make an introduction into a customer, (laughs) into an account? And I was happy to do that. So I called a customer friend and I was able to set a meeting for him to go see my customer friends. And um, the customer called me that evening after their meeting and basically said, hey, you know, 10 minutes into the conversation, it wasn't if we were going to buy it, it was, you know, how much we could afford to buy right now. And I called Paul and I said, hey, man, listen, you are, you know, you're really onto something here. I think you've got, you know, the makings of something pretty special. Run hard and, um, you know, get me in. <laughs> Who do I need to talk to? Uh, that sounds really exciting. You know, so the combination of some really interesting tech uh, with that kind of PTC, you know, team, uh, I knew early on it, it could be really significant
0: yeah because the early stage yeah because the early stage part of blade logic we spoke with Andy Sadler, and um, there were some challenges in the interim in the very, very early stages because of the messaging right, and then yeah. as soon as you were able to turn that round yeah, that was quite- a lot
2: of trial and error, a lot of scar tissue we didn't have you know, big marketing team at all, you know, working on any sort of messaging platforms or anything like that. We were figuring it out as we were going. We just knew we had something that, you know, could help companies automate the way they were configuring servers. And it, the rest was up to us. <laughs> so it was really sales, sales driven and sales led, you know, from that point, which was exciting, uh, challenging, um, uh, and uh, ultimately fruitful, yeah.
1: What was the momentum like, you know when the momentum started to build up you're obviously around a lot of the old PTC guys Yeah, did you kind of see that fire start to ignite was it kind of uh, slowly slowly or or was it
2: you know, you know, how well, did there was a lot of con- There's there just a lot of confidence in the team. We we've we'd all been there done that, you know, we knew how to take what blade logic was and turning it turn it into something you know pretty special right as far as value of a company and so um you know there was just a a, you know it wasn't bravado it was a ton of confidence that you know we had the right people on the team executing at a high level and that you know we were going to be something pretty unique and special um and that's the way it turned out
1: and then obviously this series is very much kind of a moment in time which focuses on 33 individuals um, who were with you, you know, at Blade Logic who have gone on to incredible, you know, mind boggling success, which is yeah. beyond comprehension. It's beyond um, statistical probability as, uh, as Brian Blonde put it. Did you know that you were surrounded by this was it evident was was everyone kind of did you even have a moment to kind of consider what was around you or or, or was it just kind of going with emotion?
2: It's a good question probably not at the time um, just knew I was surra- we were surrounded by you know really top talent um, what that talent chose to do with their careers you know later wasn't on any of our minds I don't think um, but obviously. You know, we all learned something from those PTC Blade Logic days that has helped us um, immensely in our careers after the fact. really proud of what we've done collectively as teams, and um, I'm so grateful to have had the opportunity to learn from these guys. It's been amazing.
0: Did you personally have a vision at that point, Scott? Did you say to yourself
2: where you were going with your (laughs) career? Did you... No, not really. I never really thought about um, the C-suite until McMahon actually pushed me there.
1: Okay. Please elaborate.
2: Well, we were at BMC after the acquisition. Um, You know, and as John has so eloquently told the story, you know, we made some significant changes at BMC to take a pretty stagnant company and, and turn it into an, a, another growth engine, if you will, in taking market share. We made a lot of changes to do that, but we implemented the playbook. Um, and so we saw, again, firsthand how having the playbook and having the caliber of leadership spread around the globe can impact a company really quickly, which happened at BMC, you know, when John was put uh, in control. When John eventually left, um, Um, he reached out, he had been advising companies and, um, he made an introduction for me with, um, the CEO and founder of Glassdoor. And, um, you know, I took that meeting, John gave me the, uh, confidence, um, and the mentorship, uh, that now was the right time for me to go take on that kind of responsibility. I was ready and um, that I should go do that. And of course I said yes. Scott, are you
1: naturally a confident guy?
2: Yeah. Confident, not arrogant. But um, I've developed confidence over the years. You know, I think confidence gets developed, you know, as you... See success as you implement things, and you see them working out. Um, I can see around corners a lot better today than I could have, you know, ten years ago for sure. Um, there's just, like I say, scar tissue is a great teacher.
1: <laughs> also, the kind of the belief in mastery. Uh, do, do you think that also uh, really helped you? Because yeah. there was an obsession of mastery at uh, both PTC and Blade Logic.
2: Yeah, definitely um i was really confident i've been really confident in sales process and in medic and you know those are those are two you know very important pillars um, to what i do as a sales leader um and uh yeah it's just so many lessons learned in implementing these types of processes I, i will say though that you know these aren't cookie cutter. Um, I think it's really important um, in any situation that you're in where you're leading something or you're building something um, is to pay really keen and particular attention to all the nuances of the sale, of the industry you're in, of the environment you're working in, and modify the process and modify you know, um, the playbook to meet the demands and the needs of what you're doing at that particular time. There is no cookie cutter in my, in my mind. There are elements of it that stay static, but, you know, I think I've been really good at adapting with a level of agility. What I've learned through all of these years um, into all these new situations that I've been in to help grow and build these companies
1: that's really interesting, Scott, because I think every single person we've spoken to have actually pretty much said that there's something similar or something along those lines. And it's not to discredit John McMahon. In fact, it's probably to to the credit of the playbook that it is so adaptable that yeah. it is a, a foundation that can be. But what, why do you think you are able to do that?
2: Well, I've seen it work. So, you know, when you see things work at scale, it gives you a lot of confidence that, you know, to to make decisions um, moving forward. Uh, So, you know, when I went to the Glassdoor, um, I joined really early. Um, I was the second sales leader there. Um, So I joined at about a million dollars in run rate business very early. they had a few salespeople, um, a few talented salespeople, in fact. Um, a bit of a playbook, a bit of messaging, but what they really needed was, you know, a more institutionalized way of uh, thinking about opportunities, thinking about sales process, um, and training against all of that, um, uh, all of that information, and. Um, And so it's just codifying, if you will, um, what was needed in order to get all of the sales reps as productive as possible, um, while also informing what the hiring profile needed to look like. um, You know, what kind of sale was this going to be? Was it going to be, you know, small to medium-sized businesses? Was it going to be transactional? Was it going to be more enterprise? All that had to be learned. So you can't just take a sale, you know, a playbook, and just plop it into a situation. You have to be able to use it to the benefit of making really strong decisions about people, uh, you know, about growth strategies, about uh, you know how much you're going to sign up for the next year. All of those things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, Glassdoor was uh, a place where I was able to implement the playbook with some tweaks in order to uh, adjust to what that business needed to grow really fast, and we did, you know. Uh, I took it from a million to 20 million in 18 months. Um, and it, had, it has everything to do with execution, but the execution starts with the backbone of the playbook. Right. So, so John
1: long, McMahon was obviously very influential you know throughout your career ptc obviously blade logic you've now mentioned class door as well yeah um what, what you know were there any kind of standout moments or were there any kind of mo you know a- any kind of examples where you know he's personally kind of taught you something that you've really taken with you
2: definitely um when we were at blade logic i was uh working on a large deal at a pharmaceutical company it was very early at blade logic so you know the concept of what we were doing was just that we were having to educate the market on what this stuff was in fact and what it could do for companies so it was very early days but we were able to get ourselves in a situation at this pharmaceutical company where um they identified a project where the solution could, you know, potentially be, you know, um, started as a potential land and expand kind of a deal. Well, you know, it was a lot of work educating, you know, on this new concept that we were bringing to market. And, you know, uh, through that sales process, you know, great salespeople should have a radar on looking for signals in uh in questions that they're getting or people that they're interfacing with and all of these different various meetings they're having uh, with the customer and that radar should really be honed on you know who in the room has the power and the influence to sell for me when i'm not there you know that's the definition of a champion and i had the hardest time in this particular account identifying who could or would be a champion for us, as hard as I tried. So I called John one day, and I said, hey, I've got something to run by you. I'm in a situation, Um, how would you handle it? And um, I walked him through the fact that I just couldn't identify and didn't know I had a champion. And he told me, as only John can say it, just walk away. Just walk away from the deal and see what happens. Uh, I'd never done that before. Um, you know, when you say that to somebody who's never done that before, uh, they get nervous. <laughs> uh, what do you mean, you know, you want me to walk away? I've been working on this thing for six months. It's uh, kind of the point. So he said, you know, just professionally walk walk away. So we talked through how to do that. And uh, so what I did with this pharmaceutical company, was a very rigid process. You know, communication through this RFP tool kind of thing, et cetera. And uh, when um, the decision criteria came down in terms of what they were looking for in the solution, which we've been trying to negotiate for months now, um, uh, it wasn't exactly the way that I needed it to look in order for us to win the deal, to be assured that we had the best chance at winning the deal. And so I wrote them a letter, wrote them an email, and basically said, you know, if this is the criteria you're gonna use to make a decision, um, we respect your decision, um, uh, but we're gonna respectfully walk away from this opportunity today. Just like that. Just like that. And about two hours later, I got three phone calls from the customer. From different people at the customer basically saying what are you doing you know why are you leaving you know um, we need you in this process we like you you know we like what you guys are doing Uh, so that was you know that was the test walking away professionally is a great test to see where you stand in an opportunity if you don't clearly know and that was John's point Mm -hmm. so uh, I, so I sent that letter, I get those phone calls, I tell the guys, you know, at the, at the, the uh, pharmaceutical company, I said, um, if you want us to stay included in the process, here's exactly how this de- decision criteria needs to read, formalized, because I knew if I could get that, we could lock out competition, we'd sole source this deal, it was ours. Procurement goes through process. They changed the criteria to suit us, but it still wasn't perfect. There were some alignment things in terms of the the way things were laid out in that particular opportunity. And uh, I took it one step further. I'm not sure John knows this. Mm -hmm. And um, I wrote him a letter. And I basically said, if this is the criteria you're going to use to make this decision, we're going to respectfully walk away. I did it twice. Wow. <laughs> Two hours later, I get a phone call. What are you doing? I said, it's not perfect. You know, here's why it's not perfect. You know, competition's going to be able to angle and they're going to be able to throw in some smoke and mirrors to be able to, you know, maybe get there. But, you know, if you do it this particular way, you're going to expose them and you're going to see us for the strengths for what we're doing here. So, so they sorry, eventually
1: sorry scott so is this your you're defining how they should go about buying this from you yes yes <laughs> yeah okay now
2: i have people on the phone that uh want to lock arms to figure out how to do this thing together and they had the power and the influence to have these conversations behind closed doors when i'm not there they were you know these guys one in particular was a champion. I just didn't know it until I tested them. So, um, you know, long story short, we were able to sole source the deal against our top competitor and, uh, you know, won a multi-million dollar deal.
0: Incredible.
2: Thanks to John. <laughs> you must have a that, great
0: poker face there, Scott. <laughs> yeah,
2: no, it's, it's, it, you know. You know, the first time you do that, it's, it is nerve-wracking. Um, um, but to this day, it's something I teach as p- part of the playbook. Um, when I'm doing deal reviews with sales reps or we are, you know, uh, thinking about strategy in an account, um, I have taught the professional walk away, um, to great success. Um, I can tell you that, you know, sales... People's careers have grown significantly through this one single tactic. Um, and it's something that they use today, um, and really happy that they learned how to do it. That's part of the playbook for sure.
0: It's a tough time, it's a, it's a tough call though, isn't it? As you say, when do you, and, and in your opinion, the question to you here is, is, is at what point does that happen? The minute that one
2: part of you know, Medic doesn't fall in place? How, where, yeah. Where? Well, look, Medic is a compass. You know, if you're not sure exactly where you are in an opportunity, the answer is in Medic. Um, there's always this uh, spot uh, in a uh, in a sales process, which, which I call the black hole of sales, and um, lesser experienced salespeople, you know, they'll they'll have used all of their leverage in that opportunity. They have no more chips to play, and they don't know what to do next. So they just wait for the customer to call them, you know, with an answer on something. Right? Yeah. Medic gives you. Um, the things to go get the things to go ask for the things that you can go work on to ensure that you're you know you're qualifying as well as you possibly can on opportunity um yeah but it, uh, but the timing of how to use the walk away kind of strategy is uh in particular is a great test for whether or not you you know you have a champion or not mm. and you know that's that's uh when done well and done professionally i have to say uh, it can be really effective mm. so i think
0: we've obviously then moved on from Glassdoor. We've we've we're obviously talking about a part but there is a really interesting part in your career which was obviously stepping up and doing an advisory role at wise line haven't obviously spoken yeah how did that come
2: about Yeah, um, (laughs) interestingly, Mm -hmm. uh, the head of sales at Opsware, which is, was our competitor at BladeLogic, um, was, uh, was at A16Z, Andreessen Horowitz at the time. He was managing their executive briefing center and, you know, Mark's part of the PCC. Yeah, we're talking about Mark Cranny. So, um. So I get a call out of the blue from um, uh, from the CEO and founder of Wiseline basically saying, hey, Mark Granny suggested I give you a call. Um, would love to hook up and connect. And, you know, um, we're a young organization trying to figure it out. We've got a, you know, really hard charging head of sales. Um, you know, would you mind, you know, coming in and just taking a look and seeing, you know, what we're doing and, um, you know, we'll do in a little bit of, of an advisory thing and, um, so yeah that's how that worked out it's interesting that it was <laughs> from an Oxford guy
0: <laughs> and, and then the all famous most recent career glint and what, yeah. a, what what a six year journey that must have been because you were there for just under six years is that correct yeah
2: five and a half essentially a half
0: years. Yeah. which is a long time right You've you've put a lot of blood, sweat and tears into that, but you've joined January 2015, looking after worldwide sales and the revenue for the business. How did that introduction come about and what can you tell us about that
2: experience? I got connected to Jim Barnett, uh, founder and CEO, um, to have a breakfast. and just have a chat, you know, talk about what he's up to and what he's thinking about. And um, I hadn't met Jim before. And, um, you know, he's he's an amazing guy. He's six-time CEO, two-time company founder. He was a VC. You talk about, you know, being entrenched in Silicon Valley, you know, uh, I really wanted to meet this person. Right. Um. And we just, we, we talked, we hit it off. He was talking about what he was building. Um, he talked about why he was building it, which was as important. Um, the concept of Glint uh, came about because, you know, as leaders, he as a CEO, myself as running sales organizations, et cetera, um, you know, one of the, the hardest questions for us to answer is how our team, or how our people were feeling about work, um, about their boss, about how it's going. Um, you know, it was very hard to get really actionable feedback um, the way it had been traditionally done, which was usually an annual survey, uh, which was hard to implement, even harder to action against, etc. So Jim, as a, uh, being the entrepreneur that he is, saw an opportunity to solve a problem he was having. <laughs> and a lot of us have, you know, in terms of managing people. So right away, I I connected with the vision and the purpose for what he and Gotham Kura, our co-founder, were building together. And, you know, as I, as I got to talking to Jim, um, he is, It's just an amazing human being on top of being an amazing business person, you know, which I was really drawn to. And I, uh, so I I really connected to that. And then I did did a little bit more research into the space. And, you know, it's a 30-year-old industry that's dominated by, you know, uh, consulting companies, doing a lot of manual work and doing these annual surveys and, you know, companies are moving at the speed of light today not on an annual basis and you know checking in one time a year with your employees just doesn't make any sense anymore somebody needs to go fix this and we were the ones to go do that Um, and so i was really well aligned to what the mission was and i was very passionate about it you know and for me anyway when i get passionate about what we're doing um, if I can identify with the problem that we're solving i'm way more effective you know in selling to customers in selling to future employees in selling to investors. you name it you know my charisma can come out at that point um, so to speak and so um so uh, Jim invited me to uh, come in and lead the sales organization or lead the early revenue organization I joined as you know one of the earliest employees in the company, I think it was employee number seven, eight, something like that. So, right, I joined during stealth, so nobody knew about Glint. Um, as part of the process, I asked Jim uh, if, uh, to talk, I wanted, I wanted to talk to some CEOs of some customers, early beta customers, and what they were seeing you know, in the technology and in, in, uh, in the data. And I asked, I asked him for four, thinking there's no way. There's no way he's going to be able to give me four. There's stealth. He did. They were all friends of his, but they were using the product. So uh, I called all four. Um, they were really great with their time. And I asked some very specific questions about what is unique, about what you are seeing in this data that you never had access to, to before and please describe to me the value to the business in having this information as the leader of the company because for me as the leader as the sales leader if I can get that I'm on to something and you know four out of four I got some very early signals that um, what was being built was solving a specific you know a, a tough problem in a unique way, um, in a modern way, which I think was important. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, I joined the company at that point.
0: Wow. And going back, so sorry, cause we, I think there was a bit, really interesting point that you made, which is, you know, one of your, um, second pillars to your playbook is and what's a really important role is getting dirty i think you phrase
2: yeah
0: yeah which is yeah rolling up your sleeves which by the sound of things is is the start but can you elaborate on that and what, what you meant by that
2: you know as sales leaders we talk a lot about playbooks and about qualification process and all of those things but um at the core the foundation of everything that we do there are some really basics that have to be done first you know one of those is you know understand the sale understand what it actually takes to sell your product or service to a customer yeah i've seen time and time again where a sales leader will come into an organization they'll drive a desk um You know, they'll get third-hand information in terms of what the sales actually like, but to actually get dirty and get into the business and, you know, do a sale or many, you know, run multiple sales processes for the learning exercise, um, I think is incredibly valuable. I don't know how a CRO can do the job without it. Um, And what it does is... Again, you talk about confidence, it gives you confidence, one, that you know, you've lived through the sale from point A to point Z, from the time you know, that you've reached out to a client to get that initial meeting to the time you've closed business. There's so much to be learned that then can be used to create the playbook. Right. or to tweak the playbook that you've used in the past because maybe what you were doing in the past won't specifically work in this particular situation. But you can't know that until you've actually done it. Yeah. Um, it, so one, I think, you know, an important thing is, you know, you, you can only build a sales playbook off of your firsthand knowledge of the sale itself. So get dirty, roll up your sleeves and do the deals, at least in the early stages until you're able to scale and and build out your teams, etc. The other part of the equation here is that um, it informs your hiring profile. You, firsthand, will then be able to see and understand what skills and experience levels going to be required in order to execute uh, on that sale. Um, and that can be very different, you know, company to company. Um, so I th- those are two really critical aspects of, of why to get dirty. Yeah. Um, you know?
0: I suppose where uh, you were quite fortunate there, Scott, is that from the very sta- first stages in actually assessing the opportunity by having access to these four, you know, p- you know customers, like, you, yeah. know, you were straight yeah. away at a position where you were understanding the messaging, getting dirty, and is that early enough or is is, is that, is that what you mean? Zoe?
2: Yeah. Those, those calls with those CEOs were important just to illuminate the fact that they were getting value out of the data that was being provided them, you know, vis-a-vis anything they've used before in their lives. Um, but, um, but going through the actual sale, and you know leveraging some of the things that you've learned through the years in terms of how to position the company how to create messaging that gets you you know from a discovery call into a sales qualified opportunity say um you know those are really important steps uh in creating your sales process obviously um you know some companies might opt to go down the POC route or, you know, want to benchmark their technology against competition. In Some cases, you don't need to do that. Some cases, you don't want to do that because um, you don't clearly understand your unique or technical differentiation against, you know, your competition. But all of this can be learned firsthand if you experience it yourself. And as an experienced leader, you know, having done this for so long, doesn't take as long for me to go in and and kind of identify you know uh how to go build it you know what i mean
0: yeah completely yeah and by
2: the way all of this you know it just doesn't help the sales team you know as the head of revenue it's my obligation and as somebody that sits on the executive team it's my obligation to share my firsthand knowledge of what's happening with the customer to our product teams, to our legal teams, to our customer success teams to inform our strategy moving forward and to get everybody on the same page as far as the dictionary of terms we're going to use, um, you know, the process itself and making sure everybody's clearly aligned in terms of what that looks like. And then from there, all of your KPIs that you're measuring on a very frequent basis flow. Yeah. So it is a serial procedural way of, of getting to, you know, an operating rhythm, um, but you just can't get there. I just don't see a way to get there without having firsthand knowledge of actually how to do it. It's,
0: it's so interesting, because, you know, when you, especially when you're taking a really unique product, which is, you know, fairly one of a kind, how, ma- how many times does that message evolve through there and how quickly do you need to get it right (laughs) or is that an obvious answer
2: (laughs) i don't know there's a i don't know there's many obvious answers um how quickly that's a hard one that is a hard one to answer um
0: because then is it the case of like a deal is there a point where a cro will have to turn around to himself and say i can't get the messaging right i get what you're saying but like a deal, I've got to walk away from this.
2: Well, look, um, messaging is not in, at least in my view, is not the sole responsibility of the CRO. Right. Uh, right. So, um, in every situation I've been in, I have locked arms with our head of marketing Yeah. Uh, and together collectively, you know, we work on and head of product, by the way, we work on brand, we work on what message we want to get out into the universe, how to position ourselves, you know, uniquely against competition, you know, doing all of the research that's required in order to understand competition, what we're up against, you know, all of those things. So messaging is not solely the responsibility of CRO. Yeah. My opinion.
0: Do you know what, it's funny because you're the first person to actually have mentioned marketing in this entire podcast. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Which is, you know, I don't know whether that,
2: there's a purpose to that. I don't know. when you are able to link arms with a very capable head of marketing, uh, magic can happen, I'll just say that. Um, we definitely have that at Glint. Jim Bell, head of marketing, has been a great teammate. Um, you know, I will say one thing about, about Glint. I, I've, I have nothing but positive to say about Glint um, and that entire experience. One of the things that Jim Barnett did really well was, you know, he started from the point of view of of building a really seasoned leadership team from the beginning. Right. Um, you know, so as a team we've kind of been there, done that in all of our various roles across that team. And so we were able to collectively see around corners that lesser experienced teams might be able to see around, you know, Mm -hmm. um, I had a ton of confidence coming in that you know I was going to work with a head of marketing in Jim Bell that was supremely confident and competent and fun. Um, you know, I, I want to make sure to get a message across here that you know uh, building businesses is hard work. Um, remember to have fun, <laughs> you know. <laughs> And join companies and be a part, you know, be a part of teams who you respect and you appreciate for who they are and what they bring, you know, to the company. Um, We spend so much time together that, um, you know, uh, if I didn't like the people I was working with, it would be miserable. Um, And that is definitely part of, you know how I think about selecting companies, you know, as I go to work with them.
1: Just just going back to the purpose and the vision of the business, obviously it's very much, you know, geared at helping organizations understand what's going on within their businesses. But actually that's a core component of your actual playbook. So you kind of drink your own Kool-Aid, right? Are you, yeah. you know, can you just, just elaborate on that for us?
2: Well, uh, <laughs> You know, at Glint, it was our business. So <laughs> it was my first introduction into actually getting any kind of data about what our team was thinking about, you know? Um, uh, and that is a process in and of itself. If you have never received anonymous feedback about how it's going, uh, it can be a bit unnerving, you know? you're going to get some critical feedback in terms of the process or in terms of interactions or in, you know, it could be any number of things um, in terms of what you've built or what you've done. Um, uh, But those, those are coaching and teaching moments uh, and a a great listening opportunity for you to, uh, to make sure you stay in tune with what the organization needs to be successful. Um, That, that is it's gold, you know, and we were doing it on a monthly basis and getting new insights from the team, you know, on a regular basis in terms of where, to, where we should consider tweaking our strategy, uh, where should we, we should make some specific changes in what we were doing. Um, some of it was, were good suggestions that we didn't take action against. Some of it was very actionable and made a ton of sense for us to think about. So instead of a collective, you know, six, seven of us in, ex- in an executive conference room figuring this out, we had the collective of the company involved in the process of helping us, you know, understand what's gonna, what it's going to take to build a great company. Um, so we were really, you know, we were active listeners to what our employees needed to be successful in their roles and to help them be their happiest and best self at work. Um, I had never experienced that prior to Glenn. I never had access to tools like that prior to Glenn.
1: What kind of feedback was that giving you? Was that giving you operational feedback, yeah. um emotional feedback, other feedback? What what is it you were getting? All of the
2: above. It depends on what we were asking at, at a particular, you know, point in time. Um I remember vividly, um one piece of feedback I received, I was I I uh, had the SDR team under me at Glenn as well. And um there, there was a, a preponderance of of commentary coming from that particular team about growth, about them wanting to grow. So, in and of itself, you can make an assumption on what growth actually means. You know, to the uh, to the uninitiated, <laughs> be careful how I say this. <laughs> to the uninitiated, growth you could assume that growth means you know that. These lesser experienced, younger employees perhaps just want to get promoted. They want the next role, you know, three months into the job. You could make an assumption, um, but you could be dead wrong about that. What I came to find out, you know, so, so these were data points that you can action against and have further conversations with these teams. So this bubbled up as a topic that, you know, was of concern. They weren't getting or seeing the growth opportunities in order to, um, you know, to get better at the jobs, et cetera. So I had a meeting with them and I said, hey, I got I got some great feedback. You know, you're talking about growth. Tell me a little bit more about what growth means to you. And it wasn't about getting promoted. It was about learning. They want to learn new skills. They want to, you know, they want to get to the next job. It's not about promotion, it's about skill development. And at that point, You know, through a lot of active listening and just conversations with a team that all of us should be doing, uh, we were able to create a curriculum uh, to get them, you know, uh, into, you know, kind of a a growth situation where they were learning new skills and we were developing a bench, you know, from our SDR team that could eventually move into sales. Um, That is, you know, just one example of many, you know, through data like this.
0: Wow. Power of data.
2: Um, so
0: you've then smashed the US. US is going great. Amir's is now starting to pick up a bit. And you decide that you're going to go and build out the Amir market and become a Chelsea fan, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I believe... That's a fact. <laughs> which, if, I, if my memory um, serves me correctly was done by a test online, wasn't it? <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's where it started.
1: <laughs> Love it no, I that
2: was cool. sold on Chelsea on on the River Thames uh, for New Year's, which turned into being a se- season ticket holder not too long after. But yeah. <laughs> which, which I was thrilled about. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we've gotten to $25 million or so at Glint. And um, we started to, you know, we had a customer in EMEA a big customer, kind of an anchor tenant, if you will, um, uh, who was happy. Um, and so and we started to get some other signals in Europe that, that maybe it was the time for us to invest um, resources and some effort in trying to win that market and get there faster than maybe competition could get there. So we sat around as an exec- executive team and talked about um, the market and what it was going to take and who was going to go do it, <laughs> you know, and uh, there's one of two decisions that can get made there. Either one of us goes and, and does it and goes, you know, build the team and, or you hire from the outside and, uh, and make a bet that that person will fit and mesh with the great culture that you've built to this point. Um, I had never done the international thing prior to that. My, my wife and I were in a, in a position to be able to to go and do it. And so I raised my hand and said, let me go do it. I've got the playbook. I know exactly what it's going to take to go win business there and do it fast. Um, and uh, it, 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 <laughs> it was it was a great move. It was a lot of fun. We, we grew, you know, up, upwards of 10 million in ARR, you know, in less than, in about a year, uh, quickly. One of the strategies that we used actually, or that I used to, um, to make sure it was the safest bet possible is I had one of our top salespeople at the time, a guy named Fraser Aiken, keep an eye on him. Um, Fraser, um, uh, was managing a territory for us in Chicago at the time. He's also a British citizen. He was born and raised in the UK. So I said, hey, I said, um, I'd like for you to spend half of your time in Chicago, right, and then the other half trying to figure out if now is the time for us to go to the UK. So let's get into some opportunities and let's go figure out we can go win business over there. And it took less than six months for me to realize, for him to realize, actually, that um, uh, you know the time is now. Mm-hmm. So um, when we decided to do it, you know, one of the things I advise companies on, especially when thinking about global global expansion and moving into new markets, is when you go, go, like go, invest. Don't just stick your toe in the water. Go because you should have enough data and evidence to support the fact that you're gonna make an attempt you might as well go for it yeah um and if you've got the right people in place yeah you know your bet can be pretty well assured so i i moved fraser there to the uk to be our first salesperson on the ground um we had a customer success person there already managing our big anchor tenant account and we started the build from there Um, i moved shortly after fraser moved over to the uk um and we set up shop and you know 50 people later and you know it it grew fast
0: and how did you find that because obviously we know that every region whether it's central europe or southern europe or northern europe they all have a different go-to-market strategy but how did you personally adapt to that different cultural situation
2: um i didn't I, i i honestly didn't see uh ton of nuance across those different regions in europe like we didn't have to change our pricing model at all you know to adapt Um, you know different cultures certainly do business a bit a bit differently for example germany you know we had a little bit more rigorous in terms of you know some security things we had to be doing and and so on so we had to adapt and set the right expectations in terms of deal flow and all of those things you know depending on kind of the theater theater you're working in I actually experienced in Singapore I saw um, I saw I saw it more there yeah um, where there are you know emerging markets that are much more price sensitive and you know you, you, you've got to really change the way you do things in APAC more so I think than in Europe in my experience
0: yeah as i said i think it's you know some you know places like countries like germany you know it's very very channel orientated and it's more of a sell through rather than a sell to yeah Um, obviously there's yeah um
2: but yeah i think for us though let me stop here just briefly there drill down on this one a little bit more um in all of these different theaters that you choose to work in the competition's different too. Mm -hmm. So it's a whole new learning process. You know, when we moved to Europe, uh, you know, there were some tech competitors there that were emerging that hadn't necessarily gotten to the United States yet. So, you know, we were dealing with uh, a little bit of a different selling situation, a little bit of a different competitive mix, if you will. Um, We didn't necessarily have to tweak what we were doing, but we had to acknowledge that, you know, we were going to run into some new competitors that we had to get really familiar with. And we did.
1: Yeah. So uh, so in those kind of competitive markets, right, um, you know, you spoke earlier a little bit about negotiating decision criteria. I think I just want you to kind of just go through a little bit more about that, because I think especially in situations like that in kind of new markets, these are the kind of core pillars that you, again, rely on to really get you out of trouble. So it'd be really good for you to share a bit more about that.
2: Yeah. um, If you're in a situation where, you know, you're in an established market with entrenched competition, maybe some emerging tech players, crowded space. I mean, at Glint, probably had 25 competitors, you know. An RFP would go out to 25, 30 different companies that said they'd do employee engagement, you know. Um, Cream always rises to the top. We always got down selected, you know. One of the things as part of the playbook, if you are in a situation like that, having a highly professional RFP team um, answering the call on qualified inbound activity like that um, is, is well worth the investment, in my opinion. But in a, in a situation where you've got a lot of competition, you have got to be able to articulate um, what your unique and holistic differentiation is as a company to kind of get, you know, to kind of get through the noise. And every customer, doesn't matter what you're selling, has either a formal or an informal scorecard they use to assess you as a potential supplier of products or services to them. Uh, I get asked all the time, you know, out of Medic, what do you think is the most important thing? Um, At Glint, the most important thing for our salespeople, again, learn through personal firsthand experience in running sales cycles was owning the decision criteria was the surest way to lock out competition, own the scorecard, and win the business, win the deal. So learn in detail all of the things that need to be on that scorecard or that shopping list, you know, called decision criteria, and help the customer, you know, create you know, that scorecard. And so uh, that for us, uh, and that for me, has been number one. Uh, 1A and 1A prime is champion development. Um, But decision decision criteria has been, you know, critical for us to cut through the noise.
1: That's intrinsic, isn't it? Because the champion, obviously, is going to be the key source to get to that decision criteria. Enabler.
2: Yeah. Yeah yeah it's it's hard to get to decision criteria without having a strong champion for sure.
1: and so what what, what how, how do you go about creating that criteria? then so you know just take us through a little bit about that process. so what what are you actually doing?
2: Well, I start with the end in mind, um, knowing that you know there are certain capabilities. Uh, that are going to be required for the customer to solve the pain that they're having. So one, understand that. Two, understand what your capabilities are in alignment to solving the customer's problem. And then three, understanding how your capabilities are different from your competition. So it's really that simple. simply said, executed uh, is a lot of hard work. Um, But if you can do it, yeah, you know, you can pretty well assure tremendous amount of success and win rate, which we had at Glint as a result of owning decision criteria as much as we possibly could. So
0: obviously pastures new, right? We're now in a position where I suppose when we last spoke, there was a looking to open a new chapter is that, is, are, you, are you far into that process now? Is there kind of uh, you know, decisions? We, can, we, can we be expecting anything being announced? No.
2: <laughs> <laughs> nothing in a minute. Uh, I'm doing a lot of listening, doing a lot of research, talking to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, I definitely have another one in me. I'm yeah. really hungry and motivated to do something really big. Um, and I have the luxury of patience. Yeah, or being able to practice some patience in this process. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm taking my time and I'm being thoughtful about, you know, the things that are important to me and, um, but nothing imminent. Scott, what is it that
1: you believe is going to, you know, what are the things that are important to you when you assess the right opportunity?
2: Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's, I have a list, you know, um, and I, I, uh, I stay really true to the list, you know, to my own decision criteria, <laughs> to the shopping list, because I know it works. It works for me. Um, you know, one of those things is, you know, to be in a big, multi-tiered, um, vertically agnostic market. Um, the thing with Glint uh, was it was, you know, employee engagement as an industry was pretty big. The selling opportunity was massive because any company of any sort of size needed what we did. They wanted what we did. Um, and so that to me, you know, was a, a kind of a prime sales arena, if you will, for us to go dabble in and figure out where we were going to play and where we weren't going to play. Um, so, Big market, multi-tiered, you know, vertically agnostic. I, you know, I don't want to get pigeonholed into a vertical. I don't want to get pigeonholed into you know being a small, medium-sized business, you know, kind of provider or or you know something along those lines. In fact, you know, at Glint, we uh, we started life selling to medium, small and medium-sized businesses because that's what we had access to. Um, but when we eventually got ourselves into some enterprise accounts. Our architecture of our products and services, our, our vision was mapped really well to solving enterprise class problems. And if we could get ourselves there into that arena, we were going to face less pricing pressure and less, you know, tech providers ankle biting and, uh, and being able to take out, you know, a lot of manual consulting companies that were doing this work for, for many years and doing great work, but, you know, sign of the times was let's let's modernize this approach and so um, when we were able to get into the enterprise, that was an inflection point for us, and it changed everything profile sales process all of it um, but you know first nine months was all about learning and getting dirty as I have mentioned before <laughs> I think too when you're assessing opportunities or looking at deals um, knowing understanding that the pain that this solution or, or product is solving is well understood and the timing is right. Um, there's a lot of companies out there that have really good ideas that weren't well-timed. And as a revenue leader, that can be a nightmare. You have investors and you have product teams and you have really passionate founders of some of these companies that Believe so much in their product and service that it's going to change the world. But if it's ill-timed, it's going to be a slog to get that into the market. So timing is really important, um, as many of us have heard uh, before. Um, I look for I really pay attention to board members, especially you know for, for what I do. I like the early stage growth stuff. So uh, investors into these companies and the board members themselves are a really critical part of, you know, the success or failure of these companies. And I look for an alignment with those board members in terms of their sales knowledge, in terms of their B2B SaaS knowledge, uh, in terms of their operating experience and what they actually bring to the boardroom in terms of advice um i've seen before where some board members you know go to the meetings don't add a lot of value you know write the check um but you know companies this is a team sport and companies need advice along the way and board members can be really great sources for that we had a world-class board at Glint for sure so i i I pay particular attention to that and I insist on meeting those key board members, having very direct conversations with them about how they think about sales, how they think about revenue, what they think about the the, the true prospect of the company. And you know, one thing I've learned over the years too is um, prior to board meetings, when you do join these types of companies, um, there are some board members that are going to want to dive Really deep into the KPIs of the business. Um, and, you know, my advice is to not let the board meeting rat hole on KPIs like that, but to kind of have a pre meeting with those that are interested um, to answer any questions, to go through those numbers prior to uh, those board meetings. That'd be my advice. That's worked well. Um, try to understand the incumbent competition a bit. Who are you going to be facing? What does it look like? Learn as much as you can about the industry. Um, And learn not from the company or the investors themselves, but other third parties, you know, media and um, analysts who are covering the space. Is it really a thing? Is it really going to break out? Does it really need to be solved right now? This all goes to timing, you know? And if I can't understand what the company does in five slides or less, I'm out, (laughs) I'm out. You know, I look at websites and I, I look at a lot, a lot of deals. And if, if it, if what they're trying to do cannot be clearly articulated to somebody like me, um, that's a problem that either needs to get rectified, um, or you know you're going to have a serious messaging issue down the road, um, and so you know I have a five slide rule, and if you can't explain what you're doing in five slides or less, then <laughs> then I eject <laughs> essentially. Um, there are a lot of first time CEOs in these growth companies or these early stage companies, and uh, that's all well and good. Um, They're going to be usually the passionate product folks um, that are really smart. Um, And uh, you have to ask yourself um, how well-surrounded is this CEO with the kinds of advice that they're going to need to, to build a great company, right? Seen time and time again where, you know, CEOs get replaced two years into the deal because now it's time for a professional CEO to come in and run the business. Um, To me, that can be disruptive. You know, that can be disruptive to the employee population. That can be disruptive to everything that you've done up to that point. And um, I look for situations where, you know, the less disruption, the better. And some really great lessons learned at Glint, you know, in terms of Jim Barnett's philosophy, in terms of building teams. And our executive team at Glint is still together today, six years in. Um, That cohesion and that trust amongst that group is a huge reason why that company's been so successful. Um, And that's foundational to me. I think the other, you know, the one last thing I'll, point out here in terms of what I'm looking for is you know can I wake up in the morning really excited to go to work? Like I'm so passionate about what this problem, what what the solution is, what problem you know this is solving that um, you know I can get people excited about it, you know, in in, in all my interactions with either the customers or employees or Anybody Um, I think that's really important, you know to be able to identify with The problem that's being solved because maybe you've experienced it firsthand. It gives you a lot more credibility so um, Those are just a few of the things that I look for
1: So I suppose one of the uh, you know, it's it's always good to understand a little bit about the person behind um, the big titles and the success so Scott, do you do you get any downtime? Do you, do you enjoy any kind of personal? Obviously, you are at the moment. But, uh,
2: <laughs> I got a lot of time. <laughs> how, yeah, how
1: do you keep yourself focused and charged when uh, w- when you're in it?
2: I have a learning mindset. You know, I'm constantly trying to learn something new or enhance a skill I may already have. You know, I, uh, I'm teaching myself guitar as an example right now online youtube um i've uh i've dusted off the golf clubs and i've <laughs> i've uh um i've dug into uh you know maybe trying to improve my golf game a little bit although i don't get to play, i don't play all that often but i've played more recently than i have in a long time um, in fact, I built a little driving range in the back of my <laughs> house with a launch monitor and all that stuff. You know, I'm getting very scientific, <laughs> but it's all in the process of you know learning something new or improving on something that I've been doing for a long time. I'm a pretty voracious reader. Uh, I try to stay in tune with markets and what's going on. And, and I'm doing a lot of uh, mentorship right now. So um, there are a lot of budding, Sales professionals out there that uh, are primed and ready to kind of get into sales leadership situations, and um, I have some of those at Glint um, and other places where uh, you know I'm I'm doing a little uh, coaching along the way, and I, that to me is a lot of fun.
1: That's uh, that's amazing. That's really really great. So I suppose the final question we always go with uh, Scott is um, does the hunter make the unicorn?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mentioned before, you know, building companies is a team sport and to me it is a sport, by the way, it is competition. Um, Hunters definitely play a significant role in creating the unicorn. However, that executive team and the cohesion of that executive team as a collective doing what they do best, you know, when that works and that clicks, that's what creates a great lasting company. Um, and so, you know, yes, of course, running the sales function and running, you know, owning revenue, is critical to getting, you know, top line and getting the money in the door and, funding all of the things you wanna do as a business. But, you know, there's so much that goes on as a team, as a collective that helps us sell more, you know, that helps us achieve our goals. So I I look at it as, you know, I'm a member of a really great team. Um, And I I don't think that I stand out any more than anybody else on the team in terms of, you know, responsibility and or um you know accolades or purpose or anything like that you no, this is a team effort that's the way i think about it
1: wonderful wonderful well scott um you know i suppose it's uh probably a good 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 place to kind of give a bit of a summary of, of what we've discovered today um so to me i think there's some kind of three main themes that i you know want to kind of share you know as a, as a kind of uh reflection um now the the series is very much around the 33 Cxo. So we always try and look at the kind of the common values, the common traits, which have created this incredible, um, uh, you know, improbable success that we've that 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 we've seen. And when we look at yourself coming from PTC, Blade Logic, and and what you've taken from that what's absolutely evident to me is the mastery of your craft and that maniacal, uh, almost borderline obsession of being on top of your process, understanding qualification methodology like Medic um, has given you the flexibility to be able to create a process of your own and a playbook of your own that you can adapt. And it's only with that mastery and being so in tune with what it can and can't do that it allows you to roll your sleeves up, get dirty and discover yeah. what you need to do in order to adapt that playbook and generate the results that you you go on to create. Now, on top of that, I think that, In order for it to be worth your while to roll the sleeves up, it also has to be something you're very passionate about. And at the end of the day, if the mission is not something that you can get up in the morning and really be excited about making a difference and making sure that you are solving big, big problems, but also really enjoying that challenge and surrounding yourself by people that inspire you, whether that's your team, but also you talk a lot about the executives and choosing the right executives and surrounding yourself with the right mentors. This is the source. And again, you know, we've heard your story and I think there are so many parallels in in, in what we've heard from other people. But Scott, I just want to say, um, it's been fantastic having you on the show. We've really, really enjoyed. I'm sure our listeners have taken so much um, from from what we've heard today. So a big thank you uh, for, for joining us today.
2: Yes, thank you thank so you much. Thank you so much, you guys. Yeah, sorry.
0: <laughs> sorry. <laughs> in then. I really appreciate you coming on the show and spending so much time and giving our viewers and us such an insightful kind of understanding of you and your playbook. Thank you, Scott.
2: Wonderful. Thank you guys thank you for much. the platform. Yeah, thank you for the platform and sharing the journey a little bit. You know, my hope here is that people can learn from some of these experiences and go out and do some great things and build great companies, you know, and I think, uh, that'd be a great win.